This is the Ag Queen Podcast. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, Lori Boyer. This podcast explores the agriculture industry with the movers and shakers of those shaping it. Today, I am visiting with Diana Bagnall, and she is a research scientist with the Soil Health Institute. Diana, this is the first time you and I have had the opportunity to visit with each other, and so thank you for joining me first off. Yeah, thanks for having me, Lori. It's great to be here. I want to learn more about you and about the Soil Health Institute. So tell me a little bit more about yourself and your background before we start talking about the organization. Sure, absolutely. Well, we got to go way back to being a 4-H kid and learning about dirt and plants and animals and all that fun stuff. But when I went off to college, I pursued a degree in soil science. And after getting my master's in soil physics, I was a project manager for a few years and really got interested in how science moves from research out into the real world. And so I just decided I had to go back and grab an interdisciplinary PhD. So I learned about soil, but also economics and sociology. And when I graduated, I was thrilled to take a position at the Soil Health Institute because that's really what we do is take the, the big picture and the, the broad view of getting these soil health practices that are so good for our land and for our communities adopted. How long have you been there then? I've been at the Soil Health Institute just, I guess, finishing up two years now. And where are you headquartered out of? Yeah, I'm currently in Columbia, Illinois. So we're right outside on the Illinois side of the Mississippi River, but really close to St. Louis. Where is the Soil Health Institute headquartered at? So our main base is in North Carolina in Research Triangle, but our scientists are all over the place. We've got scientists in Oregon, we've got scientists in Iowa and Colorado and we're pretty broad. Diana, that leads me into asking you about the Soil Health Institute now. Tell me more about this organization and the mission. Yeah, so the Soil Health Institute is a nonprofit, and we're tasked with protecting and enhancing the vitality and the productivity of soil. So that's like this really broad, far-reaching goal. We're a nonprofit, and so um, we, we work a little bit differently maybe than some groups who are also working on that, many of those who are in research or who may be doing it in a more of a for-profit capacity. But we do a lot. We're interested in really moving the needle, and we think that starts with farmers and their decisions to adopt soil health management practices. So to get at that, we do a lot of things. We look at measuring soil health. A lot of our research work more recently has been in that place and understanding what the best measurements are for soil health. So we can all kind of get on the same page and keep track. But we're also doing farmer trainings, and we're also interested in the economics of soil health. So interviewing farmers to make to learn um, how these practices can pay off. Um, so we do a lot of different things, but we try to organize everything around that. What do we need to do to, to move the needle on soil health management systems? How do you measure soil health? Yeah, so one of the ways that we do that is to go to the field and we measure biological and physical and chemical properties. So a, one you might have heard about is soil organic matter or soil organic carbon to see if we're getting that up to levels that we think are appropriate and reasonable for the particular soil types. But as probably your listeners know, there's a lot of different kinds of soil. So you have to be thoughtful about where we are when we're kind of trying to compare, are we doing a good enough job? So 
that soil organic carbon is a good example. We measure the structure of soils, how they, well they aggregate, and try to measure their biology as well. So that's your job as a research scientist is to do the measuring? So, yeah, our research scientists and our project scientists will go out into the field and take measurements, but we also work with a lot of partners to do that, too. One of our more larger sampling efforts in 2019, we had over 95 partners at 124 locations across the U.S., Mexico, and southern Canada. And so, you know, we were out, yeah, in the field taking measurements, but then also going back to the, to the labs that we partner with to do the analysis. And then trying to figure out, all right, we've got all these measurements. Let's uh, let's make sense of it and write some some publications to get those into the scientific literature as well. Is soil measured differently depending on where you are in the country? So, for example, is it measured differently state to state? There are some differences in some of the tests, especially some of our lab tests that we might be interested in. For example, soils that have a high pH or low pH, so more of our acid soils or our soils that are more alkaline, we might need to use a different lab measurement. But, you know, one of the key things I think that we're finding is, you know, we can measure soil organic carbon or soil organic matter in any soil. We're going to use the same test and go out. But what we want to be thoughtful about is if we're asking the question, hey, how good of a job am I doing managing this soil? Then we'd say, well, what region am I in and how do I compare to a reasonable benchmark? So I don't want to say, oh, I measured your soil in, you know, West Texas and I'm going to compare you to an Iowa silt loam and tell you how good you're doing. We want to be really thoughtful about place in that situation. Who uses the data? Farmers do use some of this data and they're already doing it. Um, During my PhD, I had the chance to interview farmers in Texas and learn what they're doing. And a lot of them said, we're watching our soil organic matter. We do that measurement and we keep track of it. Scientists also are really interested in that data. And then as we think about groups who really want to put their dollar behind making change, who may be saying, hey, I want to improve the water quality in a local watershed, um, whether or not that's a, a corporation, maybe who has a commitment, or if it's a nonprofit like us that we just want to know, is this working? Those are all groups that use those measurements to try and understand, you know, hey, how how well are we doing? We want to make sure when we implement a practice that it's working. That was basically going to be part of my next question is, are you commissioned by private companies and government or, you know, who do you actually work for in collecting the samples and providing the information to? Yeah, that's a great question. So it's going to be really diverse for us because we a lot of our projects will have a specific funder. So, for example, the really big project that we I was describing earlier, that was funded, that was a government project. And so those data will eventually be published and they will go out to the scientific community and we will be reporting to everyone uh, because those are, are federal funds. If we were working with a, a particular company, hey, we really want to, for example, make a difference and see that, you know, maybe we've partnered with groups like Cargill, for example. They might be wanting to know, or Wrangler, they might be wanting to know, hey, how are we doing here? So it's not that the data necessarily will be proprietary towards them, but they really want to see the changes in the numbers for a particular project if they funded it. So we don't have kind of one stream where everything goes, um, but our goal is, of course, always to make sure that the findings that we, the learnings that we have eventually get back, that we can be training farmers and helping provide uh, work with our farmers 
to make sure that we get the information they need to make their decisions. A good example of how the data can get shared is we recently interviewed over 100 farmers in nine different states, and we released those all in webinars and in fact sheets. So those are freely available um, on our YouTube channel and on our, um, our website as well. So we try to get that stuff into the hands of people who can use it as best as possible. Diana, going back to uh, the start of our conversation too. So you, I've been asking you a lot on measuring. Um, I think that's the, probably the meat of the whole thing. But you also said you work in the realm of some other parts of this, including economics. Tell me a little bit more about that side of things. Yes, that's a great question because our farmers and our ranchers are business people. And if we want to move the needle on adoption, it's got to make dollars and cents, right? So at SHI, one of the projects that we're just kind of wrapping up, as I mentioned, were these interviews where we had an agronomist and an economist sit down with over 100 farmers and learn about the management practices like no-till and cover crops that they had implemented and go back through records to see how much money were they spending. And so each, we've released these both kind of as a whole and then by state. So I'm just going to look at the list in Iowa, Nebraska, Tennessee, Illinois, Indiana, South Dakota, Minnesota, Ohio, Michigan. I'll never remember them all, so i gotta, I got to make a list. We have these individual fact sheets to show, hey, when you transition over to no-till and cover crops, how much is your net farm income changing? So where are you saving money? For example, we're converting to no-till and we're saving money because we're not having to get that tractor out of the barn, not having to buy fuel for it, we're not having wear and tear on it. And that's going to affect your bottom line. And so those fact sheets are going to tell you, you know, on average, how much that, that happened. And the same thing with our cover crop stuff is how, how is that changing? And what we're seeing is, yeah, across the board, those farmers who've adopted soil health management practices, their net farm income is higher because they're saving money. Um, and in some cases as well, there are ways that they can make money. So those are, those are exciting numbers that we'd like to get out to everybody. I know you mentioned you were a nonprofit, right? Okay. And so you've explained to me what you do as far as testing and the information you provide. And I'm sure there's more than just what we've talked about. Does your organization do any political advocacy or anything in that realm too? We don't lobby. We like to inform policy. We like to have really good sound science that, you know, then the folks who need to make decisions can make the right decision. We do try to keep track of it in some cases. So We are interested in policy and we want policies that make sense. And one of the things we noted, and I forget exactly when we published the report, was just to go around and look at how many different states had some form of a soil health program or soil health bill. And that was really encouraging to see how many folks are out there saying, hey, soil health is good for our environment, it's good for people. How do we make sure we're providing our farmers with what they need to adopt soil health management practices? But we don't lobby as an institution. Just a couple more questions for you, Diana. We might have to do this again because there's so much more to talk about. One of the things that has come up over and over in my world with interviews, especially an emerging topic, is carbon credits. And you mentioned the word carbon in there. Is that a realm you're working in as well or getting it started in at least? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, I just was there here in St. Louis, got to attend my first in-person conference last week, I think it was. And we hosted a session on soil carbon credits and learn about that. So, well, there's, that's a huge topic and there's a lot of information, but we're really interested in that space. And I think that 
when I look out and see why I love soil health so much, it's because it's so complex and it's so holistic. And the beautiful part about the carbon credit space is that the same practices that we're talking about that are going to save farmers money, that are going to improve our water quality and reduce our erosion, those are the practices we use to build soil carbon. And so it gets pretty simple. I like to keep it easy. And we know we've lost soil carbon, soil organic matter from our soils as we've begun to plow them, if we go back to before they were plowed. And so now we know, hey, we can put some of that back. And so that's just a win-win-win for me. So we don't have a particular you know, advocacy in terms of we're not trading carbon. You can't come to the Soil Health Institute to buy a, a carbon credit or something like that. But we're really interested in, in that as well because it's just a part of the big picture that makes it all work. Anything else to point out about the Soil Health Institute that I haven't asked or that you would like to touch on before we wrap up? I think you've really covered the ground well, and we've, we'd love for folks to go check us out on YouTube. We've got a, a nice documentary out that's just kind of, I think we're just, I don't want to say the number wrong, but I think we're just about to sneak up on 3 million views. So it's a good way to learn about soil health and with some popcorn and kind of a, a fun way to do it. Um, and the information that we've talked about today, you can find on our website. So hopefully we, we've provided something useful for your listening. I learned a lot. So thank you. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks, Lori. I've really enjoyed it. I want to thank my guest here today, Diana Bagnell. She is a research scientist with the Soil Health Institute, my guest here today. If you would like more information, be sure to log on to SoilHealthInstitute.org. That does it for this edition of the Ag Queen podcast. I'm your host, Lori Boyer.